Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week of the Max Potential Habits podcast. I'm super, super psyched this week. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I was on LinkedIn and I was searching around and I typed in podcasts and then I was looking at interviews and that same day I had released um, an imposter syndrome podcast and it, it got a lot of good feedback. A lot of people I know suffer from imposter syndrome, including myself and every business owner I know at various places along the way of building a business, we suffer from imposter syndrome. So I found an incredible guest that I met on LinkedIn. She is a top voice in LinkedIn. She's a psychologist and executive coach and an organizational consultant. Her name is Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, and she has recently written a book on imposter syndrome that's soon to be released. It's called... Oh, actually, I'm going to let you introduce it, Lisa. Sure. Welcome to the show. And and anyone listening, you know, I, she has such a stacked bio that I'm not going to read it today because it's long and incredible and powerful. So it's going to be in the show notes. And just know that you are listening to somebody who has helped many people, been featured in all kinds of incredible outlets like the New York Times, NBC News, Forbes, The Huffington Post. I mean, this woman is a powerhouse and she knows what she's talking about. So tune in for an incredible show. If you want to beat imposter syndrome and learn tips on how to do that, learn what it is, learn how to overcome it, she is your woman. So welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So tell us about yourself. First, I would I would love to know how you got into coaching because I know you have your sure. doctorate in psychology. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, and okay. I'm a psychologist. Yeah. So I think a lot of people don't realize this, but um, there are two main branches of practicing um, psychology. One is clinical and one is counseling. Um, there are clearly others like school, and but the general gist of private practitioners people think of as psychologists are along those two lines. Counseling psychology diverged from clinical in the 50s um, when people were coming back from war. Um, and one of their specialties were helping people to do vocational rehab. So to help them to figure out what kind of careers would be possible for them after they left the military. And counseling psychologists mm -hmm. became the at the forefront of testing, kind of career counseling. And so our branch of psychology has a particular expertise in career counseling. Most people don't know that. Many of us don't practice it or kind of engage in it, but we are trained. And, and kind of is steeped in the testing and the kind of development of career. And when I graduated um, and started my practice, uh, my husband, it was actually his area of focus was career. And I always thought it was super boring um, because <laughs> I just thought the material was dry and, and unpleasant. But he was the first person to teach me that the personal is professional and the professional personal. And I think when I saw it come alive in the work as then I was like, because I was always interested in identity. Identity was my real love. And so I could see how much career was connected to identity. And that's where we kind of started to do that particular branch of work. We opened our practice a year before the recession. When the recession hit, all the psychotherapy pretty much dried up. And what, who came to our practice were, were career folk, um, people who wanted to make career transitions, do, deal with their careers. And that's how our, our specialty of our practice was developed. Wow. Such a cool story. I always love listening to the twists and turns that people take and how often wow. it's a, you know, a big dip in the economy or some big life event that causes you to go a different direction than you thought you would. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so, the pathway is not up and straight. <laughs> right. I, I almost never. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm curious, you, you were talking about identity and one of your loves. Is that, will you talk about that a little bit? What, what does that sure. mean to you? 
So for me, my passion was really around racial identity and the impact of racial identity on development and how we see ourselves. So um, the reason I went to Columbia was because that was the place where they really specialized in identity work. Um, a lot of the professors there were the founders and creators of racial identity. Um, they studied white racial identity, black racial identity, people of color racial identity. It was a really phenomenal place to learn about identity and its impact on development. And so that's always been a passion of mine and understanding how race impacts our understandings of ourselves. Mm, so awesome. Um, my dissertation research was with incarcerated men and looking at their mm -hmm. development of masculine identity through trauma and through oh, gang wow. involvement in prison. And, and so a lot, a lot of overlap. And Oh, fantastic. Right. I, I mean, yeah. it's so powerful to think about how our, our environment shapes, uh, macro systems, our yeah. interaction with the system, uh, trauma. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's such a powerful yeah. force. And it's interesting for me. I, you know, I never thought I'd go into coaching and and I, you <laughs> I, know, didn't I, was either. Work, I was working with prisoners, <laughs> you know, and, and I, it just became one of those things where I really wanted to be able to provide solutions. Yeah. 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 I think it's very similar to what drove me. I really wanted, you know, I also had a very traditional um, pathway through to get my PhD. So I worked in hospitals. I worked in counseling centers. I did a lot of these. I even worked in prisons too. Um, so I, I had a lot of a very traditional background. And I think what, what I really for me personally, what I wanted to see was change, growth. I wanted to see people get wins that I could really concretely look at. Career just gave that to me as like it gave yeah. me this ability to kind of feel like I could really impact and see the impact of my work very concretely, very quickly. Yeah, so that definitely. Was, it's appealed yeah. to me. Absolutely. Me too. I, I mean, it's funny because I've had people ask me before, well, where are you ever going to do prison work? And I said, maybe at some point, but the hard part is the change is so slow. You know, yeah. so you're, you're talking about the entire criminal justice system and it's a totally different reality than that. Getting yeah. to have a light bulb moment with someone and then change an organization or change their company or change their business. And you, know, you can really see growth fast. And I do, I love that part. Of yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. And I often get to work with people who are making changes within the system and that awesome. makes me really powerful who are actually yeah. going out and doing the work on the ground and making those changes. That's really also a blessing and feels really lovely. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. I know I read in your bio, it was talking about you doing that, some of that work with, um, is it universities that I read yeah. and, reor yeah. and reorganization and evaluation of their career centers? Um, yeah, so yeah. we do a lot of different work in like organizations and, you know, it depends sort of the, the problem is often very different with the organization. So sometimes they ask us to come in and they have a very special group of people who they feel like are not getting enough leadership support. So we'll do like leadership institutes and teach like the people that are not getting the time to kind of think about their leadership. That's super fun, especially in really, you know, challenging environments in which there isn't a lot of time to think about leadership. It's like, you know, we're just got to do our jobs. So that's yeah. really fun. I, you know, we get to kind of go into nonprofits and help them really rethink you know some of their structure and some of the impact of like race and and culture and and diversity on the way that their workforce is, is kind of handling their particular opportunities so it's a really like fun opportunity to kind of both be in the room and do my one-on-one -on -one coaching but also go into organizations and help them shift their thinking help them think about diversity in different lenses help them think about leadership in um you know in different ways give them space for leadership so yeah really wow. fun I'm curious, what's your definition of, of, of a, a powerful leader? I don't know if I have one definition. I mean, I okay. think it really depends. It's super contextual to the environment. But to me, what's, I think what's most exciting in a leader is when I get to see a person really be able to see their 
their teams, their direct reports, their teams, very in, like see them as individuals, be able to kind of support their development and their growth, be able to maximize their potential in the, in the work, and also really support their personal like boundaries. And I'm really big on that. Like you got to also let them have lives. Like their whole devotion can't be to you and to the workplace. And so it's, it's really exciting for me to get to see that in a leader is to get them to maximize both their own leadership and, and the people that worked for them and get to see the best in them and the best in themselves. So that's like mm, my favorite thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like what you're saying in terms of it, it's so unique to the context yeah. and, and the individual, the, the company you're working with, you know, are you leading a team of two? Are you leading a company as yep. a university setting? I mean, it's such different qualities yep. and characteristics. But one thing I often think about in leadership is, you know, helping people in their leadership role be as powerful as they can be in themselves so that they can show up authentically. And it yeah. ties to that imposter syndrome piece, mm-hmm. right? Yep. But let's, let's dig there. I want to know what, what would you say, describe for people listening, what the elements of imposter syndrome are, a definition, some things to look for, that kind of thing. Sure. So first of all, I'll say it's not a mental health illness. I get a lot of that, that question a lot because I'm a psychologist. They think it's a mental health disorder. It is not. It's yeah. a phenomenon. So it's a constellation of behaviors, thoughts um, that kind of create this experience. So it typically is found in people who are high achieving, who have credentials, who have expertise, who have experience, and yet they can't internalize that experience. That experience feels like it's either due to a mistake, to luck, to a relationship, um, but it's not due to their own competence. And so as a result of not internalizing that, they, they really rely on a lot of external feedback um, to get approval for those you know, moments that they're actually achieving. The problem is that approval doesn't last but a hot second. And once that approval is gone, the insecurity returns right back. And so it kind of creates what they call the imposter cycle. Um, and so oftentimes what you see underneath it is a lot of perfectionism, um, a lot of um, insecurity about um, their achievements, what, what, how they got them. You see this really pervasive fear of fraudulence, of being exposed as a fraud. So mistakes aren't really tolerated for themselves and sometimes for others as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of this pervasive fear of being found out as a fraud and you constantly have to cover it up by overworking. Um, and there's another feature sometimes that's less talked about, which is the self-sabotage. So some people overwork and they're really good at being perfect. Some people, because the anxiety about the performance is so great, they often procrastinate, engage in self-sabotage, and then, you know, still perform well, but there's, sometimes there's a mixed result. And when they get that mixed result, they feel like that's, that's another exposure of their fraudulence. Um, okay. Wow. Um, that was packed with so much that I see in so many people I work with and myself, you know, in the past of myself, even stepping into coaching or when I got my PhD and, you know, it's like this constant uh, mindset tricks, right. That we learn in order to go, Oh, I see this happening. And as we get more self-reflective, we can go, okay, I see imposter syndrome happening and I can step into a different way of being because I understand what it's, what is happening there instead of just kind of buying into it and going with it. Um, Yes. Something I want to talk about first that you said, and there's a lot that I want to break down there. You said it's not, I, I think the name in and of itself when it's called a syndrome, Yeah. people think about it a very specific way. So I like that you highlighted that it's not, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a combination of behaviors and thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? I think that's really important. 
Sure. I mean, Clance and Imes, the two psychologists that developed, that developed this concept in the 70s, they are very, very adamant about the fact that it, it not be called a syndrome, but it's been po- become popularized as syndrome mm-hmm. instead of imposter phenomenon. So people don't recognize imposter phenomenon the same way they recognize syndrome. Okay. I think, that what, I think what you're pointing to is the fact that despite it not being a mental, it's not a mental illness, it does have some early developmental antecedents. So there are some oftentimes early behavioral experiences that people go through that kind of create a fertile ground for imposter syndrome developing. Um, oh. go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's funny for those of you listening, we can see each other on Zoom. If you're on, if you're on the podcast, we're seeing each other. So, you know, she saw me getting excited to lean in and say something and then she paused. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, yeah, I want, of course, I think you were going there anyway. I was going to oh. say, what are some of those antecedents? Sure. Um, so one of them is as being thought of or having a very specific role as the smart one. So in your family, you were considered the one who was like super intelligent, like really capable. Things came naturally and easy to you. And as a result of that, um, you didn't have to work at things. And so this idea of anytime you have to work, it's proof that you are not as naturally gifted as people thought you were. Mm-hmm. And so this very sort of dichotomous, dichotomized kind of idea of like intelligence, like intelligence requires no work. Um, and then the other one is that you are often the person who was not the smartest, but you knew how to work hard. And so the idea is that everything you've got was from extremely hard work mm-hmm. that you don't have natural gifts. You don't have natural skills and talents. You must work hard at everything in order to achieve it. And the third one is not one. Those, so those two are really talked about pretty heavily in the, in the research literature. The third one we, we talked about, my husband and I, when we were developing the book is like, I see a third type that isn't often talked about in the literature. And it's people who were neither thought of by parental or adult figures as the smart one or the hardworking one. There were no typical adult figures around. They had to survive. So there's a, a survival, I think, one where they weren't thought of as either. They don't. They wouldn't characterize themselves in either category. They just had to survive. They had to learn how to how to excel to survive because there wasn't a lot of support. There wasn't a lot of like parental figures or people around, kind of helping usher them to the next place. And so their competent, their kind of struggles are often around, I'm doing this because I need to stay above water. Even if they are way, way above water, they don't see that oftentimes. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. I'm curious, uh, you talking about this, it's making me wonder for you, what led you into that research? Because often we have a story behind, you know, why we're led to certain (laughs) topics. Yes. Yeah, we do. So, I mean, clearly I've had imposter syndrome. So I know it very well, not only because I work with it in my practice, because I've dealt with it myself um, pretty profoundly. And I think, um, you know, people think, oftentimes people with imposter syndrome think, oh, if I get this degree, if I get this credential, if I get this opportunity, it's going to stop. No, it doesn't stop. Like literally when I was walking down the stairs from depositing my dissertation at Columbia's library, I felt petrified that they were going to discover something in my dissertation that was wrong and that they were going to call me. So I was obsessed for years that every time I got a, a a um, call for like for, uh, for for donations from Columbia that they were going to say, oh, there was a mistake in your dissertation. We're rescinding your PhD. Yeah. Um, and I know I'm not the only one who thinks about this because the other day I Googled it because I'm going to give a talk. I'm going to do a TEDx um, in a couple of weeks. And I, get, I Googled like what the term is officially. And there were 158 million um, responses to that question. <laughs> so wow. I'm definitely not the only person who worries about that piece, but I think it's a, it highlights the fact that 
that even the degrees don't make it go away. Um, yeah. the accomplishments, you have to kind of really face it internally. And I think for me, like, um, for me, there was a very particular moment in my career where I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Um, cause this has gotten really bad. You know, I had a really bad boss. Um, I had a situation in which, you know, all the bad things were happening. I was underpaid by 50% to my, to my colleague who was doing exactly the same thing I was. I was, you know, being humiliated in public. Um, you know, I was being chastised and treated really poorly, you know, with, the people that I was working with. So it was really a horrible experience, but I was, I was trapped and I felt stuck and I felt like I couldn't leave because I just to be grateful that I had a job. Um, and I was, you know, talking about it incessantly about how horrible it was, but everyone was like, why don't you just leave or find another job? And I just felt paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he did something that changed my life, um, which was we were in a meeting and it was, it was the all female senior staff team. And there was music playing in the background. And he said, and somebody said, one of the women said, what's that music playing in the background? And he said, it's music to soothe the savage breast. And it just changed. It was like the lights went on and I was like, okay, I got you. Um, and I, when that meeting ended, I went to my office. I said, I called my husband. I was like, I'm quitting my job. And he was like, quit now. And so I cleared out my office over the weekend and Monday I delivered those keys to him. And I said, uh, you know, no notice, no nothing. And I quit. Um, And, you know, he was his horrible self, which was pretty predictable and threatened my career. All the things I feared like sort of came alive. But in that, in that moment, and like when when I went home and had my panic attack, which I did, um, I, I I decided I need to do something different here. And my husband said something that will change my life, which is he said, um, if you learn to work as hard for yourself as you do for others, you're going to be unstoppable. And I just started to study for my licensing exam, put my business together, think about what I wanted for myself. I took all that energy I was investing in other people and I put it toward myself mm-hmm. and I built my practice, which has been a gift to me in more ways than I could ever describe. Oh, such a powerful story. I, I mean, my eyes fill up with tears. There's this, to me, there's this so much power in these moments that we think in the moment are life altering in bad ways. Yeah. <laughs> they often set us in a trajectory that changes our whole life in every way. And, you know, it's, you know, thinking about the support of your husband and thinking about how sometimes we need those people like your boss to have that moment and say that one thing that finally pushes you in a new direction, even though you're terrified. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for sharing. It's really, um, it's really vulnerable to share those hard spots. And it's also so helpful because, you know, for people listening, we've all been in those times where we're like, especially, you know, for those of us who've experienced the, the behaviors and thoughts around imposter syndrome, it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, oh, I'm not good enough. If I leave, can I get something else? What if this is the best opportunity? What if no one else will see my worth? Then that, you know, the, the situation might be that they don't promote me or they don't give me a good reference, like on and on and on, yeah. you know, and, and it's when we don't own our power and go, I'm totally resourceful. Yeah. I can move on. I can do yeah. what I want to do. I don't deserve to be treated this way. I'm, I'm curious. Um, I'm hearing some, when you describe imposter syndrome and the characteristics of, of people when they're experiencing it, does it in any way to you relate to codependency? Because I, it, a lot of those, you know, it's like people pleasing um, yeah. and trying it's to foundational. make Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of that overlap there and yep. I hadn't really made that connection quite before. 
Yeah, codepend two things sort of exist sort of in the in you know the mental health issue range around um around uh imposter syndrome, which is uh usually a family with codependence issues and uh or sort of a narcissistic parent or parents um are sometimes involved. Um and so there are sometimes those correlations, not every time, but sometimes there are those correlations to codependence and to um, narcissism in, in the, usually in the parental unit. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, in codependency, it's that idea of putting other, you're so you're seeing yourself through others' eyes and you're usually seeing yourself in a negative way, trying to make sure they see you in a positive way. So you're putting on a lot of masks and performances to try to figure out how to make sure the people around you are experiencing you the way that you want them to experience you, which is as usually thinking like, Oh, I want to be projected a certain way. Like I'm better than, and it might be that you're actually incredible, but because you don't see it, you're trying to project something else. Um, Okay. Uh, let, let's talk more, you know, for those parts you said a lot there, you talked about um, uh, p- thinking you're making mistakes or, or you think that it's a mistake that you got where you are, mm-hmm. luck and relationships. Can you break that down a little bit for us or what that would really look like on a practical level? Sure. It's usually the attribution of the of the actual success or the credential or something to an outside factor. So one of the things that a lot of the research has talked about is that oftentimes people, and this I think connects very much to the codependence with um, imposter syndrome have very sophisticated and very high EQ. And so they're very good with people. They're very good in engaging people. And so they don't interpret that as high EQ. They interpret that as manipulation. So they often feel like I know how to get somebody on my side. I know how to get someone to kind of do what I need it's not necessarily like pure manipulation. It's that they know how to build good relationships. They have solid EQ and the relationships didn't get them the credentials. They got them for themselves. The person is just happy to support them or be a mentor, be someone who's actually providing some level of support. But oftentimes there's this perceived idea that they are manipulating others because they are really good um, you know, interpersonally. So I think that's a piece of it. Another okay. piece I think is this idea of like, um, that you've gotten it as a as a result of an accident so someone overlooked something or someone was you know not doing their due diligence when they accepted you to a program or to you know where you got an opportunity you just feel like you know well maybe this year they that application pool was pretty thin so you find the ways to kind of dismiss your achievements um even in places that are super concrete that you've gotten an achievement, you just kind of find a way to kind of dismiss it as like a mistake or an error or just your, your, your luck. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for everyone listening, sharing, you know, from my experience, I had all of those things, you know, it's like <laughs> when I, I remember after I defended my dissertation and I passed and, you know, I was like, did, did I defend, did I pass because my professor, my, you know, my uh, main advisor really liked me and she talked them into passing, me, you know, like, <laughs> yes. or did I really pass? And I mean, you have the, yeah. I, I have had to work with those doubts my whole life, you know, like yes. anytime I, you know, I got straight A's and, you know, it was like one of the top of my class and it was like, did I deserve that or did they feel sorry for me? <laughs> yes, know, that's like, exactly what happens thought-wise. Yeah. Oh, it's intense. Yes. And yeah. I know, you know, in building a business, when I stepped into coaching, it was, there was a lot of that. And, and I think luckily with coaching tools, we can overcome it in big yeah. ways and I've made mm-hmm. such huge strides. So let's go there. What are, what are the, you know, for tips for listeners, what are the, some of the ways that they can start to deal with imposter syndrome? So some of the things we talked about, we talk about in the book um, are that the foundational layer is really understanding sort of where this came from. Um, I think it really helps to kind of unpack um, 
like what were some of the common kind of like foundational layers that kind of laid the groundwork for this and how are they potentially still operating in your life? Um, so taking a look in the, in the book, we have you do like a family genogram and kind of look at sort of the cool. impact of sort of codependence and other things that may be happening in your life and, and to kind of take an honest look at whether there's something, some of those things are still going on because you have to give and shed some of these things up in order to be able to kind of overcome the imposter syndrome. You can't just not be an imposter at work and still kind of be doing it at home. You have to really be able to kind of shift the identity completely a little bit because otherwise it'll come, it'll come back in some other form. Okay. And also once you know sort of like the foundational layers of how you got to where you got, it really makes the triggers and trap doors that we call them triggers and trap doors really really clear to you. So I, so for me, like I had a very particular type of boss that I, I found myself drawn to clearly mm -hmm. from my own history. And that particular type of boss always was going to engage my imposter syndrome in a very particular way. He was going to be very withholding. He was going to give me praise very infrequently. He was always going to tell me he expected more of me. And I was constantly going to feel like this need to kind of constantly prove myself to finally get into his good graces. And he would very rarely let me in them. So that was always the kind of archetype of boss. And so knowing that, it makes, it makes it easier not to, to start to evaluate when you're in an interview whether or not this is that type of boss. Like if you do not want to replicate your imposter syndrome, and it's true if like you have your own business, right? Like this can be true for the type of client you take on. Like you have to think about the type of clients you take on. They can also, you know, engage your imposter syndrome, but you have to know what type of client you need to stay away from that's not healthy for you either. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's really helpful in that way. I think the next piece is really um, helping you to choose new behaviors. So like when we were talking about before, when you were um, talking about like all the thoughts that came into your head about, you know, doing you know, your dissertation and during getting all A's when you were in school. Those are automatic negative thoughts. So we talk about in the, in the book too, about like, how do you kind of have, take that automatic thought and recognize that you are not your thought, you are the observer of your thoughts. Um, and so how do you then take that thought, look at it externally, push up against it and make another choice based on that thought, right? And then, and actually change the thinking a bit too. So make a different action as a result of the new thought you're thinking. And that thought's much more based in reality, based in evidence, based in accuracy of what's going on, not what you believe to be going on. Um, so it's really kind of helping you to repivot those thoughts and really realize just because you're having them doesn't make them accurate or true. Because we often tend to trust our thoughts as if they're absolutely completely accurate and they're just yeah. not. Yeah. Um, and then I think the final piece is really like learning to build community, learning to kind of really, you know, get support for the new behaviors and really help yourself to kind of make good choices because you have other people around you who, who know your, who know and have, and that's why I share my story because I, I want people to recognize like it has to become a thing where you're out about it, where you're kind of like able to talk about it. You're able to share the vulnerability. You're able to share where you got, especially with the people around you um so that they know these are these that boss that that sounds like a pretty triggery boss that doesn't sound like the best fit for you so they can kind of give you feedback and kind of catch you when you start to fall back into things so you do need like a team of people around you you do need to manage and monitor your own kind of like skill stuff that you need to work on and hold yourself accountable as well um and then i think it's really recognizing that there is no there is no um People say, can you cure it? I don't think there's a cure for it. I think there's a way to kind of lessen and quiet the imposter voices um, to the point where you don't hear them as often. They're much more rare. And when they do come up, you're like, I, I got your number. I know who you are. Um, as opposed to like, oh my God, there, here I go again. I'm still incompetent. Like you don't, you don't play that game anymore. You, it still comes up, but you respond to it very differently.
Yeah, that's so powerful. I mean, the main thing I hear you saying is it's a lifelong process. Yeah. But it will get better. Yeah, you can get a lot better. Yes. And I know that from my own experience. Yeah. It's like the, I don't, I've been really fascinated by, uh, you know, I did that podcast and I've been reading a lot about imposter syndrome. And in my mind, I've been thinking a lot like, oh, I'm doing it to help my clients because I didn't really frame it in what I was experiencing as imposter syndrome, it was more like my codependency that I would always frame it in, in my mind. Yeah. But you yeah. know, as you're saying the characteristics, I'm like, Oh yeah, totally that. that, that, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. I mean, when we were writing the book, my, my husband would often be like, you're having an imposter moment. Yeah. He's like, you got to deal with that right now. Cause you got to move forward on the book. Cause I would get frozen in imposter syndrome, even writing about imposter yeah. syndrome. So. so fascinating. I mean, exactly. You know, it's like, and I hear in the inner critic voice, you know, it's like mm-hmm. the imposter voice is the inner critic voice. Yep, absolutely. And, and for me, that was like such a beat up. It was like, I, I learned strategies to train my inner critic into being an inner cheerleader. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear you yes. saying, you know, you're teaching people those strategies through, through looking at the root of the issues first and raising conscious awareness so that they can face it and not have it running them. Yes. You know, it's like a very similar approach. I just never thought of it. I'm, I can't wait to read your book. It's so <laughs> Thank exciting. You so much. <laughs> yeah, it's very I exciting mean, to be able to free so many people of this, like, oh, Oh, really so many I mean, amazing people right and I think that I mean I'm curious for you and, and I, I haven't obviously your book hasn't come out yet so I haven't gotten to read it is it um, interviews with people is it based on your previous work with people is it what kind of research is it it's a combination of um, the research that exists out there you know what's interesting is there's a lot of decent research out there but because it isn't a mental health issue it doesn't get a lot of things like any NIH funding or NIMH funding so there isn't a ton of research yeah. out there about it because it's, it's not funded tremendously but okay. I think there's a, a lot of good research out there so we use the research that's been out there for, th- for now 40 years. Um, we also used some of the, the, so we used kind of like amalgams of cases that we experience in our practice because some of, we had to fill some gaps. There are, there are definitely gaps in the literature about sort of what to do about it. And then we thought about where have we been successful in our practice um, with imposter syndrome and what have we done to, to create the success? Like what interventions have we done? How do we systematize that in a way that people can actually take with them and actually do themselves? Okay. And so that's a lot of how we he devised the book. Um, awesome. So there is, there are actually activities. Um, there are sh- worksheets. They're all kinds. It's a very active, hands-on book. Okay. I, I yeah. love that about um, mainstream academic books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's like you actually get to like give solutions and really practical application. And so yes. if you do it, you know, more of a scholarship type of book, like in the academic world textbook. Yeah. Um, it was something for me that was really intriguing about stepping into coaching and thinking about transformation. It's right. You know, it's like writing transformation stories and giving people the actual steps because we all want yeah. solutions and something I think that is really important that you're pointing out is that, okay, it might be a lifelong, it might be something lifelong that you grapple with, but it's something that gets easier and easier over time. And there are, there's a lot of information out there and now you've pieced together practical steps to help people over time, get better and better at, at managing it. Uh, and, and I want to say overcoming it, you know, but it's like overcoming it in those brief moments where you're yeah. like, okay, I noticed my imposter yelling at me. <laughs> How am I going to handle it? Yeah. Yeah. And like you were just saying earlier about the connection between codependence and imposter syndrome is that kind of working on your imposter syndrome can give you all these additional benefits in other parts of your life where you don't see the imposter syndrome so clearly, but may also be like happening through the lens of codependence or other things. So it really can help you kind of free free yourself from those perspectives that are potentially. Yeah. 
Yeah. Difficult. You know, you know, I want to share, I have to share this with people listening because uh, my listeners know I'm really into helping heal their money blocks and overcome mm-hmm. their money blocks. And when you have imposter syndrome running, it is really hard to break through to the level of wealth building that you want to break through to because yeah. you don't believe you deserve it. And you said something way back. You said, you talked about being underpaid. Um, you know, and I think that when you, when you struggle with imposter syndrome, you often put yourself in positions where you're not getting paid enough. And if you're in your own business, you're not getting, you're not charging enough. You're attracting people that, that you, it's almost like you were talking about how you had a pattern of, um, drawing the same types of bosses to you until you became aware of it. Mm -hmm. And now you own your own business, right? So now you're like, yes, I get to be my own (laughs) boss and and deal with these differently. Yes. (laughs) Um, but you know, it's so true. We, we will attract the people to us time and time again, until we get to grow through that spot and overcome it in a new way and learn a different lesson. And so, you know, for people listening, if you're struggling in the, in, in the financial, aspect of your business, look at, at, consider imposter syndrome, you know, consider looking at, well, where am I minimizing myself? Cause it's a huge minimization of self. Yes. And when we minimize ourselves, it's really hard to, we can't, we don't believe we're worthy to attract great wealth. Yes. Those things are so tied to me. Oh, completely. And I see it very much in my practice because oftentimes people with imposter syndrome don't want to negotiate their salaries or if they have their own businesses, they're willing to take whatever people can give them. There's a very sort of like um, their worth is, is almost, is very much tied to that compensation um, piece as well. And you, and it is part of that. So I totally agree with you. Yeah. You know, and I, I've seen it across the board. It's like, I had professors in my department who they talked about this very specifically, how become being a powerful negotiator, when you step in, um, you know, we'd have people in the same exact position making 30 to 40% less. Yeah. And that's, you know, we, then we add in the gender dynamics, the race dynamics, all these different things that also put us into positions where over our life course, we, we decide that we're not worthy. We decide we're not good enough. We decide we don't know how to negotiate. And then you step into those moments and it's going to be really challenging for you if you're not implementing strategies to help empower yourself. And to me, I see your book and this type of work as one way to really start to dissect where am I beating myself up? minimizing myself, thinking, Mm -hmm. not owning my worth, not seeing Mm -hmm. my worth, those kind of things. And I mean, to me, it's, oh, I just like, I think what the work you're doing is incredible and really empowering for every single individual who uh, wants to really take charge of themselves. And, and the thing, you know, I was, um, my podcast release, it was actually released today, was talking about the number one, uh, the most common habit I notice people holding that holds them back is negatively comparing themselves to others. Yeah. And that's a version of imposter yeah. syndrome too. Yes, right? absolutely. It's like yep. thinking at everyone it's actually a component of it better it's than you overvaluing. It's actually a component of imposter syndrome, overvaluing yeah. others and undervaluing yourself. It's actually a, a yeah. concrete component of it. So yeah. absolutely, completely. Yeah. So, so perfectly timed and so awesome. So tell us the name of your book, where they can find it. Sure. Well, apropos, it's called Own Your Greatness, (laughs) Overcoming (laughs) Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt and uh, Succeed in Life. So good. All yeah. the things I love. All the things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. And, um, for the show notes, I'll have a link. So it's releasing. When did you say April? Do you know the 14th? Date? 14th. Okay. So April 14th, but everyone, mm-hmm. 
don't wait because if you wait, you might forget. So go to the link and pre-order it. So in, in Amazon, I think the, as far as I remember, the way it works to pre-order is they, they put it on your account, but then they don't charge you until they ship it. So you'll be in line for the pre-order and then yes. it'll ship to you on April 14th, which I mean, to me, this book sounds incredible for anyone who wants to own your greatness. And I don't care where you're at in that spectrum, buy the book. It sounds incredible. I can't wait to read it. It's been really, really great to have you on. I, and let me ask you this. What would you say are your top three max potential habits that got you where you are today? Um, I think I would say I love the Pomodoro technique. So I think that has been a habit like that has really helped me to face um, things I don't want to deal with with my business. Um, Will and you share what them. that is for people who don't know? Sure. It's this technique that you use to manage your task management. So you, you set aside a 25 minute uh, time period and you just do one task on your task on your master list. And so you segment out how many you're going to do per day. And then you just take a five minute break between each 25 minute segment. Um, you don't do any more than four in a row. So it really helps me to kind of stay focused, especially on tasks I want to avoid that I don't particularly like. And I'm not like at the administrative aspect of my business, which I can't stand, but I, I know is incredibly important and I have to come to love. So I think that's what the Pomodoro technique has been really helpful. I think meditation has been really helpful in, in my life and sort of finding space for that and having a hard booked self-care routine. So my self-care is hard booked. Like the things that I do, my exercise, my massages, my the things that I do to take care of my body and my mind um, are hard booked in my life. And I don't think I would have been able to do it without them. Woohoo! I love these. They're incredible. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I, I talk a lot about self-care with people because if we don't feel good in our body, how are you ever yeah. going to succeed in any area of your life? Because, yeah. and, and we take it for granted a lot, especially entrepreneurs who are pushing really hard and really trying to get their business to grow and really invest in it. And it's they're you know, they're inspired by it. So they want to spend a lot of time on it. But, and I love that you use the term hard booked. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. Like we can pretend, Oh, we'll do that. We'll get to that. We'll get to no. that. But then we never do. And it's one of the first things to go. And yes. it's one of the most important foundational habits that I hear from multiple people. Yes. And then it makes, becomes non-negotiable. If it's in your calendar, yeah. if you need to move it, it has to get rescheduled somewhere else. Um, yeah, so, yeah. That's great. It's like a date, a love date with yourself. Exactly. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been really informative and incredible. You're so welcome. And I can't wait to read your book and I'm sure that we'll, we're, we're going to run into each other again in some way. I'm sure we will. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lisa. You're welcome. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. I will see you next week. I hope you have an incredible Max Potential Week where you thrive and feel alive. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Max Potential Habits podcast. If you're liking what you've heard, it would be so incredibly awesome if you would subscribe to the channel and leave a five-star rating and a written review. This helps me help more people while we grow our NFA community so we can rock it out together. For Max Potential Habits resources, go to nfacoaching.com where you can access all of my resources. There's free ebooks, PDF checklists, a journal template, a business mindset meditation kit, and so much more. Plus, links to NFA Coaching on Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And if you're super serious about up-leveling, there's also a link to schedule a free consult to work with me in group or one-on-one -on -one coaching. 
Until next time, I hope you have a Max Potential Habits Day where you get inspired to do whatever it takes to transform into the most empowered version of yourself so you can lead a rich, thriving, kick-ass life and business.